This morning's scripture reading is Selections from Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This morning we're beginning a new four-week sermon series that we're calling I'd like to, but I can't. And the idea is each week we're going to be filling in the the blank in the middle of that sentence, talking about something that everybody, whether you're a believer or not a believer, as a human being, you'd like to be able to do, but may struggle to do. So, for example, next week we're going to be talking about personal transformation. I'd like to change, but I can't. The week after that, it's going to be I'd like to forgive, but I can't, and so forth. You get the idea. But this morning, for the first week, we're going to look at what's probably the most important topic of all, which is I'd like to believe, but I can't. It's going to be our subject, and we're going to break it down by looking at it in three sections, look at it under three headings. So first, the necessity of desire. Second, the value of doubt. And third, the leap of faith. Those are going to be the three sections to this morning's sermon. The necessity of desire, the value of doubt, and the leap of faith. We'll take those one at a time. So first, the necessity of desire. And what we're doing in this first section is, is just basically defining who the intended audience is this morning. So the, the title is chosen very carefully, and in the title, what I'm doing is describing the person that I want to talk to this morning. This person who would like to believe, to believe in God, to believe in oh, a world to come, an afterlife, to believe in Christianity. You'd like to believe, but, but you can't for some reason or another. And in saying who I am talking to, what I'm also then saying is, is who I'm not talking to. So there are three groups of people here this morning. I'm going to be talking to one of them. I'm going to not be talking to the other two. So the first of those groups I'm not talking to is those of you who already believe. You'd like to believe, and you can. And that's great. I'm, I'm happy for you, but I um, talk to you every week already, so I'm, I'm not as interested in you today. The, the other group that I'm not talking to this morning, and this is the distinction that's more important than the distinction I want to focus on, I'm also not talking to those of you who don't believe, but you don't really want to believe. It, it's not an, an attractive proposition for you on an emotional level. You know, the, the idea of believing, it's not like you're envious of those who do have faith. In some sense, maybe even you, you feel a sense of superiority to them. There's, it, the idea of believing leaves you cold. 
emotionally. And so the first question you have to ask if you're here and you don't believe is, well, which type of non-believer am I? Is he talking to me or is he not? And only you can, can answer that. You have to ask yourself this question. You know, everybody asks themselves this, the second question, which is, do I believe or don't I? Well, that's actually less important than the first question, which is, do I want to believe or do I not? Now, most people, as a knee-jerk reaction, kind of as a reflex, most people who don't believe, when they, when they hear that question, their, their first reaction is, well, of course, I, I like to believe. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want to believe in God and heaven and they see your loved ones again someday and then everything's going to be made right? Of course, I'd, I'd like to believe. That's what everybody says. But my, my suspicion is that for a lot of people, this response is kind of given without much thought, and it ends up being a little bit disingenuous. Because while there are a lot of upsides to this idea of there being a God, there are also a lot of plenty of downsides as well. Just to mention one of them, if there is a God, guess who's not in charge of your life anymore? You. And, and for a lot of people, that's a problem. I've talked to you before, I've quoted before from this passage from Thomas Nagel, who's one of my professors when I was at NYU, and he's, he's one of the most prominent philosophers in the world today that's still living. And he has this, this passage where he says, you, you may remember it, we've talked about it, he says, it's not just that I don't believe in God or that there is a God, it's that I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Incredibly honest. And I'm asking you to be as honest as he is, to be honest with yourself. Do I really want there to be a God or not? And you can't say that you're indifferent about it. You know, this is, this is what, what atheists and believers both agree on, is that this is one of the most momentous questions that there is. One of the things that, that Nagel, one of his other lines in that passage is, he says, I doubt that anybody is truly indifferent on this question. So just as a thought experiment to kind of uh, suss out your true feelings, let's imagine that tomorrow... It's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, proven that there is no God. Now, this could never happen. There's never going to be proof that there is no God, just like there will never be proof that there is a God. There's never going to be proof one way or the other, and we're going to come back to that idea toward the end. But, but for now, just for this thought experiment, for the sake of argument, let's say tomorrow that it was proven that there is no God. All of those who today would classify themselves as non-believers, tomorrow, when that happens, all of them will fall then into one of two camps. So on the one hand, you'll, you'll have those who feel deeply relieved and feel victorious. You know, the sense of, yes, I was right. Yes, I lined up with the right side. Yes, I didn't get duped like all those other people. It feels good to finally have this question settled and to know I was right all along. But then you'll have other people who had always said they were non-believers, but still, when it actually happens, when it's proven once and for all that there is no God, they don't feel relieved or they don't feel victorious. They actually feel a sense of sadness and the sense of disappointment that they can't explain. It's, I, I never said I believe, so why do I care? Why do I care that it was proven that there is no God? And you've got to figure out which of those two camps you'd be in. And you have to figure that out before anything else. The, the necessity of desire comes first. Jesus in the Gospels was always asking people, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? He always started with their desire because he didn't want to waste his time forcing something on people that they didn't want. And so that's why I'm asking you the same thing. What do you want? I can't make you believe against your will. I can't help you to believe if you don't want to believe. But on the other hand, if, if you do want to believe and you just have never been able to, then that's something completely different. Then 
There's an answer to that, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the morning. So this first section is just about saying what we're doing and what we're not doing. And all we're doing this morning is I'm trying to help you do something that you already want to do. So first section, the necessity of desire. Moving on to section number two. First, the necessity of desire. Secondly, the value of doubt. So we've established that you want to believe, and now the question is, well, why don't you? The obvious answer, just to to say it out loud, is that you have doubts. Whatever they are, they come in all different shapes and sizes. Some of them you feel more forcefully than others, but you have all these doubts that keep you from believing. So they could be uh, general doubts, you know, big picture general doubts about the reality of the whole thing, doubts in, in the supernatural, doubts in how can I believe in something I can't see, how can I know that there is a God, how, do I, this is essentially about proof, you know, how can I know that the Bible is really the word of God, how can I know that there's life after death. And then there's also these more specific doubts and objections. So the, the biggest one of these by far today is, okay, so you say that God is all good and all powerful and all loving. Well, if that's the case, then why is the world so messed up? Why is the universe so unfair? Why do all these terrible things happen in, in such disproportionate ways? You know, some people get a really bad deal. Some people get off easy. Why is it like that if God is good and fair and just? It's the biggest one by far, but there's others along the same line. So it could be about, you know, well, if, if Christianity is true, why has the church done so many bad things through the years? It could, or on an individual level, if Christianity is true, why are some of the worst people I know, why do they claim to be Christians? It could be about why are there different religions to begin with, and how can one religion say it's right over and against the others? And on and on and on. You know, that's just the, the, the tip of the iceberg of these various doubts that people have. And we're not going to address any of those this morning. And that's not because they're not important. We've actually, in the past, we've taken whole sermon series to one week at a time, take one of these doubts each week and talk about them uh, and give them their, their proper due and their proper attention. So it's not because they're not important. But we're not talking about them today. We're not focusing on them today for reasons we're going to get into in just a minute. The, the point is just today to say, whatever your doubts are, that's the hang-up. That's what's keeping you from believing. And you've got to figure out how to get over them. Now, what the Bible says is it has a unique perspective on doubt. It has a, a, doubt, a perspective on doubt that, that isn't shared by any other quarter. So if you, if you think about the religious perspective on doubt, the, the traditional religious perspective on doubt is basically doubt is all bad. It's this thing that is uh, sinful, it's corrosive, it, it's disloyal, and that's why most people in religious settings don't feel safe expressing their doubt. But then on the other hand, on the other extreme, in a secular setting, in most secular contexts, doubt is treated the exact opposite way, and doubt is treated as the only good thing, the only right thing, the only acceptable thing. That's, this is especially true in a place like New York. In New York, the only... Uh, intelligently mature disposition, the only sophisticated way to be is to have this deep, constant cynicism and skepticism about everything. That's the only way to to prove that you're cool, that you're smart, that you know what's going on, is to have that attitude. The Bible doesn't take either of those positions. Rather, the Bible has a position on doubt that's a lot more subtle and a lot more nuanced. And what it says is you can't be simplistic about it. It's not all good, and it's not all bad. It can be good, and it can be bad. When it comes into your life, it can take you to a worse place, or it can take you to a better place. So with respect to the worst place, that's pretty obvious. You know, Your doubts can keep you from having 
faith in God altogether or can take your faith away from you altogether and you lose out on God. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible of that, which probably doesn't surprise you. What may surprise you is that there are also plenty of examples in the Bible where a person's doubt is the very thing that leads them to a deeper level of faith. So this is what you saw in this morning's scripture reading, the passage that was read right before I got up here. This is Psalm 73. Asaph was the guy that wrote the psalm. He, he was this devout believer, but he, he almost lost it. it. What it says at the beginning is, my, my foot had almost slipped. He almost lost his footing, and he's using that as a metaphor of this climb of the mountain of faith and saying, I almost lost it altogether. I almost lost my faith completely. For him, it was an issue of injustice. You know, we mentioned these specific doubts earlier. His was, my life is going really bad. I see people around me who don't acknowledge God at all, who don't even play by the rules. Their life seems to be going really well. So it looks like I kind of chose the wrong team here. What good is God? What good are the rules if this is how my life is ending up? But again, I don't want to focus on the specific doubt. The point for us is just that he was slipping. He was slipping really fast. But by the end, he turns it around. He, at the end of the psalm, gets to this place that he would have never gotten had he not gone through his doubts, this place of sure footing, firmer footing than he had ever been on before, where he says, you heard in the scripture reading, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. It's one of the more famous, more beautiful declarations of faith in the whole Bible. It's been sung and memorized for thousands of years now. And we would never have that paragraph there on the page had he not gone through his doubts first. Same exact thing with Thomas, doubting Thomas. We've talked about him before on Sunday mornings. You, you probably remember the story. He, uh, this is after Christ's death and resurrection. Christ appears to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed the meeting. And so Thomas comes back, and the disciples say, uh, we saw Jesus, he's alive, and Thomas says, well, that's great that you think that, but you know, I, I don't believe that, I'm, I'm a doubter. What happens when Jesus does come, and when Thomas finally does meet Christ, is he falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And it's the climax of the entire Gospel of John, because it's the only time in the Gospel of John that someone directly calls Jesus God. None of the other disciples had said that when they saw him risen from the grave. And so there's a sense in which Thomas's faith surpasses the faith of his peers because of the doubt that he had gone through. Francis Bacon, who was uh, you know, one of the early modern scientists, one of the guys that ushered in the scientific revolution, has a, a line that encapsulates this idea really well and shows it's actually a principle that applies not just to this area, but more widely. What he says is, if you begin with certainty, you will end in doubt. But if you begin with doubt, you'll end in certainty. And the idea is you have to question to make progress. You have to process these doubts if you're going to have a faith that's worth anything to begin with. This has been true throughout church history, all of the great men and women of faith. So when Mother Teresa died and her journals were published, you know, there were these numerous passages that talked about her doubts and her times of struggling with deep despair. And there was this, this general sense of like, whoa, whoa, even, even Mother Teresa doubted, you know, this is a big revelation. But no true believer was surprised by this. Everybody that actually knew what faith was about said, well, of course she doubted. That was the only way that she could have ever attained the depth and strength of faith that she had. 
So summing all this up, the point is that faith and doubt are not opposites. They're rather two sides of the same coin. Doubt is an ingredient in a strong faith. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is it, it all comes down to how you see yourself. You have doubts. We know that. You, to this point in your life, have seen yourself as, well, I'm, I'm a doubter. I'm a doubter. I'm a non-believer. According to the Bible, a doubter is not a non-believer. A doubter is a pre-believer. There is a very real chance that you are already on the spectrum of faith and you don't even realize it. So that's the second section of the sermon, the value of doubt. Third and lastly this morning, we talked about the necessity of desire, the value of doubt. Lastly, we need to talk about the leap of faith. And this is the, the question we've been heading toward all morning. We've established that you want to believe we have established that you have these doubts and that the doubts are not a deal breaker in and of themselves, but then that still leaves this question of, well, fine, but how do I get over them? You say these doubts can lead to a deeper faith. You say that these doubts aren't an insurmountable obstacle, but, but how? What's the process of moving from unbelief to belief? So let me start to answer that question by first saying what you don't do. What you don't do is you don't try to argue your way out of your doubts as an intellectual exercise. You don't take one doubt at a time and research it and get into it and try to figure out the answer. And the reason you don't do that is very simple. The reason you don't try to intellectually argue yourself out of your doubts is because that wasn't the way your doubts developed to begin with. Now, people want to pretend like it is or like it was. What, what religious skeptics will often act like is that the way they came to doubt was by this process of intellectual investigation or education, you know, from reading and analyzing and, and a lecture in college, and, and you come to this place of just re- realizing, well, I'm an intelligent, educated person, and I can't believe these superstitious fairy tales anymore. My mind won't let me. That's the way that they'll, they'll present it at first. But what I found in talking to religious Skeptics is that if you ask them why they don't believe, first they, they come with some doubt, like we've talked about, one of the ones we've mentioned, some intellectual objection. But then if you keep pressing and you keep digging, you keep asking, eventually, somewhere in the conversation, they will say something like, you know, I just can't believe in a God that would let my little brother die. Or I, I just can't believe in a God that, you know, all the people I knew growing up that were Christians were were close-minded and judgmental and kind of nasty people. I can't believe in a God like that. Or, you know, I've done a lot of things the Bible doesn't condone, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep doing them. So I, I can't believe that I'm even the type of person that God would want anyway. And the point is, doubts never begin with arguments. They always begin with experiences. It is always first this experience that you have, this emotional, psychological, social experience that you go through that makes an impression on your heart. The doubt begins in the heart, and then only after it's rooted in the heart do you then come up with these other intellectual objections to justify it. Once it's in your heart, then your mind starts acting and saying, hey, what about this? And hey, what about that? And hey, what about the other thing? That's how doubt works. And you have to understand how doubt works if you're going to work with it. Because what it means is that the way that you got into your doubts, that's the exact same way you have to get out of them. You're not going to get out of them by argument. You have to get out of them by religious experience, by spiritual, emotional experience. And that's what the passage this morning teaches us. 
You heard, we mentioned earlier that he he makes a turning point, Asaph, this guy in Psalm 73. There's the point midway in the psalm where he turns things around. And what it says is, he says, when I tried to understand these things, I was deeply troubled. In other words, I couldn't reason it out until I went into the sanctuary of God. What's that about? What's the sanctuary of God? It's saying the sanctuary of God is the worship service. And he's saying, I didn't stop pursuing God on an experiential level, on an emotional level. I still kept seeking him in the worship service. I still kept praying. And eventually, I had an experience of him, aside from my doubts, that then uprooted my doubts in my heart. And then the intellectual answers came. We excerpted this, and it wasn't in the psalm, but he has all the intellectual answers to his doubts after he has this emotional experience. So we're not saying, oh, just just don't care about the intellectual side. The intellectual objections don't matter. You know, you don't need to address those at all. That's not it. They do matter, and they are important, but they have to come later. You have to have the experience of God that uproots the doubt in your heart first. And you say, well, how do I do that? You know, how do I have this, this emotional, spiritual experience of God? My guess is that you probably already have. For most people that want to believe but can't, they already have had this deeply stirring experience of God. And it could come from from any sector. It could be any number of different things. So for some people, it's having kids. You know, I've talked to a number of guys who said, I was fine not believing in God until I was in the delivery room with my wife. And I saw her give birth, and I held my son or my daughter for the first time. And I knew that there was something bigger going on here. But it doesn't even have to be something that profound. It could even just be these simpler moments of of experiencing beauty. You know, this time where you're outside the city and you're looking at the stars, or this time where you're alone and you're listening to music. And it's logically no different than any other time you've been looking at the stars or listening to music. But for, for some reason, this time you have this experience where you know without any doubt that this world is not all there is. What I'm saying is experiencing God and developing faith is as simple as leaning into that and not letting it be taken away from you. Because what happens is the the experience passes. It always passes. It's always short-lived. And then after it's over, you say, well, was that real? Did that really happen? Or was it just, you know, my emotions being manipulated, just my evolutionary instincts taking over my brain chemistry? You explain it away because you can't feel it anymore. It's gone. And then your doubts come back. Then you go back to, oh, yeah, and what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? And your, your doubts seem a lot more real than the experience. And, and I'm saying it's really not hard. All you have to do is just keep your doubts at bay. Just put those on the shelf for a moment. You're going to come back to them eventually. You'll deal with them eventually. But just put them on the shelf for a moment. And instead, just go with this experience and say, that's enough for me. Just screw it. I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm going to believe, I'm going to choose to believe. As a matter of willpower, I'm going to choose to believe and choose to have faith. You say, well, it's not really that type of thing, is it? You can't choose to believe. It's, it's not a matter of willpower. You have to be convinced. It's something that has to happen to you. You can't just actively make this choice. But actually, you can, and you even have to. William James was professor of psychology at Harvard around the turn of the century, and he's always in the conversation, you know, short list, four or five people of who's the most original, the most insightful American mind ever, period. William James is usually the guy at the top of that list. The father of American psychology, the father of American philosophy, absolutely 
dominant intellectual figure. And in 1897, he, as a guest lecturer, gave this talk to the Yale and Brown Philosophical Society called The Will to Believe. It's now one of the most famous essays in American history. And what he says is, look, the scientific community wants you to believe that you you can't believe anything until there's sufficient evidence, until there's sufficient proof. And you're not justified in believing anything until there's sufficient evidence and sufficient proof. He says the problem with that is is that when it comes to this question of God, there's never going to be sufficient evidence or sufficient proof one way or the other. And so you have to just take a leap. You have to take a leap one way or the other. You just have to decide how you're going to live and stick to it. You have to make a choice to believe or not to believe. And it takes faith either way because there's not enough evidence on either side. And what he's great about pointing out is that saying I'm not going to decide, that in itself is a decision. So what he says is everybody's living one way or the other. See, this idea of agnosticism, like, I, I'm not an atheist. It's not that I don't believe. I just, I just don't know. Well, it's, it's kind of a myth because the question is, how are you living? Are you living like there's a God? You say you don't know there's a God. Are you living like there's a God? Are you seeking him? Are you trying to open yourself up to him? Are you worshiping him? No. So then what you're saying is, you're living as if there is no God, even though you're not sure. And my question to you is, how is that any different logically from living as if there is a God, even if you're not sure. There's no difference. They're both exactly to the same degree, intellectually justified. They're both just as risky. You just have to decide which way you're going to leap. And my fear is that for a lot of you, you took this leap away from God without even realizing it. You know, you weren't even conscious. You didn't consciously make this decision, but you just ended up on that side. You ended up living as if there was no God, as if there is no God, without ever even making that decision. My question to you is, why would you not then, as a conscious matter, as an adult, as a responsible human being, take your life into your hands and choose, at least choose, which way you want to make the leap? As we close, I just want to note that the way we've been talking about this with respect to belief in God in general, it can be applied in the exact same way to belief in Christianity in particular. So, uh, speaking personally for a moment, I've decided to live my life as if Jesus is God come to earth. Jesus is God come to suffer for us. God come to forgive us. God come to die on the cross for us. God rising from the dead. I'm going to live that way. I'm deciding, will to believe. This is my choice. Now, do I have doubts about that? Sure, because there's no proof. There can never be any proof. I can't prove ever that it's not just all some legend that's made up. But you know what I have more doubts about than saying that Jesus was God? I have more doubts about saying that he wasn't. Because of the things I've experienced, because of the things I've seen, because of the inexplicable depth and power of his teaching, because of the history of Western civilization, where this movement all of a sudden explodes out of the death of this supposedly failed revolutionary because of the hundreds of changed lives that I know of personally, these transformed families and the billions of changed lives around the globe and throughout history. It just takes too much faith for me to say that he wasn't who he said he was, that he was a liar, that he was just some guy. See, you're in this chasm 
And you're going to have to go one way or the other. You're going to have to leap and bet against him, or you're going to have to leap and bet on him. And to me, this side looks closer, so I'm going to jump this way. But what you've got to realize is that you have to make the choice for yourself. You've got to bet on him, or you've got to bet against him. And you say, well, I'm not betting against him. I'm just not betting on him. But that's the whole point of the last 10 minutes, is it's the exact same thing. There's no difference between those two. If you do bet on him, if you do open yourself up to him, then what you find as a matter of experience is that your doubts melt. You don't attack them. You can't go at them directly. But over time, the experience of him, all of a sudden the intellectual answers just come. And it's not as big of a deal anymore. The will to believe the leap of faith. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak to us now. We were just talking about experiencing you, and I ask that you would, by your grace, give us that. Give us an experience of you. Let us feel you. Let us know in a way that's not irrational, but is super rational, is beyond rationality. Let us know that you're there and that you love us. And give us the courage to be responsible for our own lives and to make a decision, to decide which way we're going to live. I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would draw us. I ask that for those who do make that decision to leap toward you, that you would catch them and that you would envelop them and that you would give them these deeper and richer experiences of you over time that would chip away at their doubts and help them to believe with stronger and deeper faith each day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.